to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. From the age of reason in the 18th century, through the lines of soldiers marching against trenches in Flanders in the First World War, military tactics and operations were dominated by linear concepts. There were exceptions in the American Civil War as in other wars. There were soldiers who conceived of warfare in terms of lightning raids behind enemy lines. One of the most famous such raiders was the Confederate cavalry general John Hunt Morgan, and his most famous exploit was the Ohio Raid of 1863. We'll learn about it from David Mowry, author of Morgan's Great Raid, The Remarkable Expedition from Kentucky to Ohio, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, home of the Pirates, part of the UNC system, but I'm not representing UNC or the system or the Pirate Marching Band or any other organization, just speaking for myself, as the guest will do the same thing tonight. That's how we do it here. Always legal on Civil War Talk Radio. It's the last Wednesday in October of 2016. It's autumn, it's dark out, 7 o'clock is Eastern time as we talk with you this evening, and it's already gotten dark. Clocks haven't changed yet, but it's that time of year when uh, it's really tonight on Civil War Talk Radio, not today. It's halfway, more than that, through the football season. The Pirates are spiraling downward in their longest losing streak since the grim days of John Thompson as head coach, so we won't talk about them at all. Uh, My alma mater, Michigan Wolverines, on the other hand, are doing great. 
number two in the country. If I did not already wear khaki pants to work as part of my professor's uniform every day, I would start doing so to emulate the coach, uh, Jim Harbaugh, but I've already got the wardrobe. I'm all set. It's getting colder outside, which I attribute to the fact that the World Series began last night between the Cubs and the Indians. Uh, presumably, one of those teams has to win the series, which means at that point, uh, hell will complete freezing over. The cows will come skating home on the ice, and the cold temperatures we're experiencing will will continue in, indefinitely. Uh, but it's a great series for both of those long-suffering teams. And in the most important sports news of all, the one you're waiting for because you can't get it anywhere else, uh, Greenville United last Saturday, Sunday afternoon played to a 4-4 draw, but we were down 4-2 with four minutes left, two goals in the last four minutes, so it felt like a win. I'm still giddy to be playing on a team that doesn't stink uh, and still getting enough minutes to feel like I'm having some fun each week and not getting injured. That's the good news. Lots of fun on the, on the soccer pitch. I'll keep you posted on that because I know that's why you're tuning in. In other leisure time news, but related to the topic of the show, I had a wonderful uh, weekend experience last Saturday when uh, Dave Powell, Eric Wittenberg, and others from uh, came down from Ohio to tour eastern North Carolina. They went to some Revolutionary War sites, uh, Guilford Courthouse, on, on last Friday. And on Saturday, they went to the New Bern battlefield, and then I drove on down and met them there. It's about 45 minutes from Greenville. They were appropriately impressed with what the local historical society has done with Newburn. If you're in eastern North Carolina, take time to visit that uh, small but really uh, very well-preserved battlefield. It doesn't take too long to walk the whole trail. You can do it in an hour, but there's great earthworks that have been preserved, really an interesting place, and, and the interpretation has gotten just better every year, more signage added, more uh, more information. Anyway, they I joined them. I'd, I'd been to New Bern numerous times, but from there we went on to uh, tour the sites of the Wise Forks campaign of 1865, and Wade Sokolowski, the expert on the subject, uh, like Dave and Eric, he has been on the show uh, uh, before. He led a tour that was just extraordinary. We saw all these sites, uh, out-of-the-way places. Some of them are marked, some of them are not. And it made it so clear what was happening at that obscure campaign of 1865. The Battle of Wise Forks, which you really have to be not just a listener to a show like this, but a dedicated Civil War person to have even heard of it. Yet, had it happened in 1862, we'd all know about it. It'd be a significant, uh, maybe not a major battle, but a substantial one. Anyway, it was just a really good experience to to get a tour of the, the fields of, of the various places where the battle took place from an expert like Wade. And uh, his book, To Prepare for Sherman's Coming, The Battle of Wise's Forks, March 1865, uh, Wade Sokolowski and Mark A. Smith are the authors. You can go back and listen to my talk with Wade at your leisure and if you and, and get a copy of the book. It, it's just highly recommended based on both 
reading it myself and also hearing uh, hearing him take us around the field. Just had a wonderful time, and I appreciate Dave and Eric and and all the others letting me tag along with them and sort of crash their party and be part of a Civil War uh, busman's tour. It was it was a very good time. Well, this week here on campus. Uh, in my academic world, it is also Civil War time, uh, history 3121, American military history to 1898, is well into the Civil War, and we'll be spending tomorrow morning talking about the Battle of Shiloh in some detail, and history 3225, U.S. history 1840 to 1877. Also in the Civil War era, we'll be looking at the Battle of Gettysburg tomorrow afternoon. Students listening in now know where we're going. I guess I could look at the syllabus, too. The Gettysburg class is one of my favorites uh, because my layout using some indoor-outdoor carpet and a few plastic trees and several hundred uh, toy soldiers lay out the Battle of Gettysburg and and carry it out on the floor so the students see it. It's a very low-tech demonstration compared to the kinds of things computers can do. But I find it, it strikes a chord with a lot of people to actually see something three-dimensional. Uh, it gives them a feeling for the, the ebb and flow of the battle in a way that other presentations don't. So I continue to use that very traditional technology. And, and a lot of students get a kick out of it and will come back to me later and say that's the one class they remember. The drawback is it's, it's exhausting. Uh, there's a lot of walking around, crawling around, a lot of setting up, a lot of tearing down. But it's, it's well worth it. Uh, I find it well worth it, and I hope the students will, too. High school teachers will not sympathize at all. Here I am saying, I've got two major classes to teach tomorrow, and uh, my wife teaches high school. Uh, she doesn't want to hear it. Uh, five classes a day. Uh, that, that's real teaching. But we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about the Civil War. We're going to talk about it in the weeks ahead. Next week, Victoria Bynum joins us to talk about the success of the movie, The Free, uh, Free State of Jones, based on her book, similarly titled, and her other work, The Long Shadow of the Civil War, Southern Descent and Its Legacies. We'll talk about that, too. On November 9th, listener suggestion, uh, Paul Kahan, or Kahan, I should find out, uh, author of Amiable Scoundrel, Simon Cameron, Lincoln's scandalous Secretary of War. I got to read a lot of Cameron's papers once in graduate school as a research assignment and uh, amiable scoundrels just a great title november 16th guy hubs writes about greensboro uh not greensboro north carolina i think it's greensboro alabama uh, guarding greensboro a confederate company in the making of a southern community and then it's thanksgiving we'll take a break come back uh, with one more show in november one or two more in december we'll get those up shortly and keep going. We keep going in part because of your support, uh, in part because of the moral and technical support of Mark Gaffney, who runs www.impedimentsofwar.org. You want to know what's on the show, that's where you go. Uh, Check it out. You can buy the books you read about, you hear about, you can buy them there. I I get regular complaints by email from uh, listeners who point out how much money it costs to listen to the show because the books sound interesting. Just doing my job. Uh, they are interesting. I wouldn't have them on the show if they weren't. Uh, I was once asked, a, uh, a listener asked not too long ago, 
you know, you don't say if you really like or really don't like the book. And uh, the answer is, as, as you've figured out if you've listened more than a few times, is if I really don't like the book, I won't have a person on the show. Why, why waste your time and mine uh, with such a book? So uh, if, if it's on the show, it may not, they're not all winners uh, for everyone necessarily. People have different tastes, but uh, there's something in, in, in a, anything that we talk about here to, to be worth, hopefully worth your while and worth mine. Uh, tonight certainly is the case. Uh, did I ask you for money yet? Yeah, uh, money. Uh, contribute, CivilWarTR at AOL.com. There's a PayPal button on the website. Click it. Uh, do a recurring gift, $5 a month, $2 a month. Uh, any trivial amount uh, lets me know somebody's listening to the show and enjoying it. Uh, actually, I do know a lot of people are listening to the show, but it, it's good to get the tangible support to buy the books that you hear about or to buy the orange juice and aspirin that I'll be consuming this week as I got that tickle in the throat that says uh, cold season is coming. But it's not here yet. Tonight we're talking about Morgan's Great Raid, the remarkable expedition from Kentucky to Ohio. The author is David L. Mowry. I hope I'm saying it right. Let's ask him. Mr. Mowry, are you there? Yes. Hi, Jerry. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Very uh, glad to be here. Did I pronounce your last name correctly? Is it Maori? That is perfectly pronounced. Thank you. Uh, oh, wonderful. Uh, but can I call you David? Uh, uh, absolutely. You Jerry? Do. Let's do it that way. That'll make it faster for both of us. Well, uh, really enjoyed reading this book, uh, which carries on at the fast pace of Morgan's raid through Kentucky and Ohio. But before getting into the, the campaign itself, uh, tell me a little bit about your background. What, what got you into this particular topic? Uh, no, let me ask you this. this. Is this your day job? Do you study Morgan's Raid continuously, or uh, is this an avocation? Uh, what's your connection here? Uh, this is not my day job. My day job is actually as a uh, software engineer. I've uh, been a oh. software engineer for 25 years, um, mm-hmm. graduated from the University of Cincinnati as an aerospace engineer. Um, so Civil War history and military history in general has actually been my my hobby, my uh, lifeblood after work uh, since I was nine years old. Uh, so for the last approximately 40 years, I've been studying the Civil War in depth. Uh, to the point where I actually started doing serious research on the Civil War um, in my teens, and um, I, I, I really turned myself a, a self-made historian um, because of the fact that I was never formally trained as an historian, but I learned from the best. Um, I tried to surround myself with the best over the many years. I've been studying the Civil War, uh, come in contact with uh, men like uh, uh, Ed Barse and uh, Bud Robertson, uh, Gary Gallagher, uh, these guys um, often do lectures and, and discussions about how to do Civil War research and how to do Civil War writing, and I learned from them over the years. So uh, I feel pretty proud that I could produce uh, some very good in-depth Civil War research. Well, it, it, it shows. It's a very, it's a very interesting book, uh, it, one that was uh, enjoyable to read. The the question about research is, is one that I wanted to ask you. Uh, there's obviously a, a lot of research in this. There's a substantial bibliography. 
but it does not have uh, footnotes or endnotes, and I'm guessing that that has something to do with the publisher's policy. Absolutely, uh, yes. Um, that was one of my greatest disappointments as an historian because um, I learned right from the get-go that the best best type of books you can have are ones that are footnoted. Um, but we were given a limitation by the history press on the number of words we could put into the document, and um, I had to either sacrifice my footnotes or sacrifice text out of the story. And because this book, Morgan's Great Raid, is the first of its type, it's the first campaign study done on Morgan's Great Raid ever done since 1863, um, I, I really felt it was necessary to, um, to get the story out uh, with the understanding that um, this was going to be read typically by a novice Civil War reader, all the way up to the expert Civil War reader, and that uh, the Civil War reader, who was the expert, would go to the bibliography and then start looking at fact-checking on their own. So I, it was a tough decision made between myself and the, and the editor, but I think we made the, the right decision in the end because uh, I think the campaign study has really been uh, well-received by the, by the public. Well, I'm going to ask you more about that. We're going to take a short break. We'll come right back talking with David L. Maury about his book, Morgan's Great Raid, The Remarkable Expedition from Kentucky to Ohio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking this evening with David L. Maury, author of Morgan's Great Raid, The Remarkable Expedition from Kentucky to Ohio. We were talking in the first segment just at the end there about the research behind this book. 
the book is published in the Civil War Sesquicentennial series of the History Press. And David, I've had other authors talk to me about the History Press and their uh, the and how they handle uh, footnotes. In this case, you, you chose to add more text and leave notes out. I've seen other books History Press has done where they put footnotes in, but they number them consecutively from the first chapter to the last. So the last footnotes have three or four digits by them, which is kind of silly. Uh, so one thought I, I have is, have you considered doing an online document of footnotes so the way David or Michael Burlingame did with his Lincoln biography, where he had so many hundreds of pages, the publisher told him you can't put them all in. So he, he cut cut it down, then he put the rest online. Uh, yeah, actually that's been uh, estimated in the past, and I, mm-hmm. I consider that a good idea, um, because one of the things I feel that this book of mine has done is it's shaken up some of the facts that have been published previously by modern historians, and I really like for modern modern historians and historians of the future to be able to look back at my book and say, wow, this is something we did not realize or didn't know, and be able to reference the source I, I've had. So, yes, mm-hmm. that, that's definitely been on my mind to do that. I, I think the hardest thing for me is how would I host it um, and make sure that the public is aware of it. Yeah, interesting point. Uh, so, let's for listeners who... Are you know we've heard of John Hunt Morgan? They know he made a big raid. Uh, give us the the thumbnail sketch, the the forty five second version. Where did it? When did he go? Where did it start? Where did he go? Where did he end up? You know, just give us some context so we then we can talk more detail about it. Well, uh, the best way to describe Morgan's great raid, it is a special operations mission. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it, I think if one puts the mission in that context, uh, one understands that it, it's not meant to change the end of the war. It's not meant to uh, determine uh, who's going to capture what territory. That's up to the armies to do. Uh, special operations mission is to assist an army in winning the war or winning territory. So that's what Morgan's Great Ray was meant to do. And in fact, the mission that was given to General Morgan by um, General Braxton Bragg, commander of the Army of Tennessee, uh, was to divert Union attention away from East Tennessee because uh, Ambrose Burnside's Union Army of Ohio was forming in Kentucky at that time. Um, And Ambrose Burnside was commander of the Department of Ohio, which is pretty much all the the Midwest states at the time of the Civil War. So a very large amount of territory, and... uh, Ambrose Burnside was threatening East Tennessee with this newfound army. Uh, so Morgan was asked to do a raid. However, uh, Braxton Bragg and uh, Braxton Bragg's head of, of cavalry, uh, Joseph Wheeler, uh, both agreed that Morgan should stay in the state of Kentucky. But Morgan was a free-spirited, independent-minded thinker, very much the necessity of uh, being a special operations commander, you have to be very independent and, and independent-minded. Uh, he definitely took it the next step and uh, disobeyed Bragg's and Wheeler's orders to stay in the state and uh, decided to do that because he had understood a year earlier from a raid in, in southern Indiana done by one of his subordinates, um, Adam Rankin-Johnson, that if they could get into the state of Indiana or the state of Ohio, 
it would cause the greatest amount of shock to the Union forces in the West, and therefore so, cause the greatest amount of troops to be recalled from the front. And and this perfectly. is happening. We're talking about the, the summer of 1863 is when this is happening. Correct. Just, just and it, put it started. In context. The, the actual raid, even though some historians have said the raid began in Tennessee in June of 63, it really did not. Um, if you te- talk to any special operations commander, uh, a raid begins when they enter enemy territory. And at that time, uh, the Cumberland River was the enemy territory line um, between Confederates and no man's land and Union, uh, Union forces. Uh, and so when uh, Morgan entered Kentucky at Burksville, Kentucky, on July 2nd, 1863, that was the beginning of his raid. And it lasted through July 26th when Morgan was finally captured in northeast Ohio. Uh, he started with 2,400 men, four artillery pieces, all uh, field artillery pieces that would be used by infantry. And uh, he had a very small wagon train because he was going to live off the land in order to maintain speed in enemy territory. One of the things I found particularly interesting uh, reading this was the the small scale. His whole force is fewer than 3,000 men. The Union forces that gradually converge on him uh, are larger, but not. we're not talking about the Army of the Potomac or the Army of Northern Virginia here. So when you describe the engagements that Morgan's troops have with the, the the federal troops pursuing them they're on a, a human scale they're they're fought in a reasonably small area and the number of casualties is limited at least in it in any one skirmish although it certainly adds up over time so there's a real human face to to this this operation that you describe yeah absolutely and as a raider and as a special operations leader, your, your target is not armies. <laughs> the target is really infrastructure of the armies, um, such as railroads, warehouses, uh, forms of transportation, uh, small garrisons along the way, um, because that is what's going to stop the flow of reinforcements and supplies to the front. And Morgan's uh, mantra or his strategy was very similar to strategy of many Confederate cavalry raiders, and that is if you stop the flow of reinforcements and supplies to the front, uh, it would stall the Union war effort in the South. Uh, we saw examples of that, of, for example, Van Dord's raid on, uh, on northern Mississippi, which ended up um, stalling Grant's operations in his first attempt to take, take Vicksburg. Um, in uh, December of 1862. It worked perfectly, and uh, Morgan learned from these, and he, he actually learned um, uh, from all the different type of cavalry raids that were going on at the time, uh, both in the East and the West, uh, learning from his enemies as well as from his uh, colleagues in the Confederate Army. So the uh, let's talk a bit about Morgan himself, uh, He's not a professional soldier, is he? That is correct. He is a self-made man. Uh, you know, as I told told you earlier, I'm a, I could consider myself a self-made historian. Uh, Morgan was a self-made military man. Um, his only experience with the military was a short stint in the Mexican War uh, when he was part of the 1st Kentucky Mounted Infantry under uh, General, uh, well, future General Marshall 
who fought in eastern Kentucky in the Civil War. Uh, at the time, he was Colonel Marshall. And they, uh, that regiment was engaged at the Battle of Buena Vista in Mexico, where uh, John Hunt Morgan uh, served as a private. And he did very well uh, in the battle, uh, well-respected. Um, but that was it. And uh, Morgan always wanted to be in the military since, since he was young. Uh, he loved horses. He was a southern gentleman, grew up around great horses in the bluegrass state. Um, Morgan hailed from Lexington, Kentucky, uh, which we all know is the capital of, of horse racing in America. Um, he he wanted to be in the military badly, but uh, he was shunned by the uh, military elite and, and the West Point grad uh, standing army uh, that we had in the 1850s. And so uh, Morgan was uh, was forced to be a, a businessman, and he was a very, very successful businessman. The... Uh and he goes to war. Not it's not just Morgan, but he, he takes his family with him, uh, or substantial uh, several siblings go along. Yeah, uh, growing up in Southern society, uh, he grew up with the notion of Southern society being that you you paid special attention to your family. Um, family ties meant everything, um, and your family history meant any, everything. He was the grandson of John Wesley Hunt. Um, who was the first America's first millionaire west of the Appalachian Mountains, and as a result, he, he grew up in the society that uh, family should be part of your nature. And in his raids, he actually had several of his brothers and his brother-in-law in his in his division. Uh, he had four brothers and one brother-in-law on the Great Raid, for example. Now he was the oldest son of ten children. And so all of his brothers were younger than he. And in fact, he lost one of those four brothers in one of the battles uh, of the Great Raid, the Battle of Lebanon, Kentucky. Uh, he lost his, uh, his uh, younger brother, Tom, uh, who was buried on the battlefield. That, it, it struck me as I was reading that, that there was a sense of, uh, I mean, there, there's a sense of romance, of, of Southern chivalry that attaches to Morgan, the Cavalier legend, and as they go off on this raid, these guys are eager to, you know, raise Owl and go north and uh, whip the Yankees and ride their fine horses. And then uh, Tom uh, Morgan gets killed, and I'm thinking it's all fun and games until someone loses loses his life, and then suddenly it it's much more serious. Uh, maybe should have been serious from the start, but. But again, that was one of the things that, that, that plays throughout the book. A single casualty, in this case the, the commander's brother, has an impact, which when you're reading about the, the, the Shilohs and the Gettysburgs, uh, as Sherman said, you become numb. Uh, it's like a, a, a thousand lives lost as a brisk morning dash. Uh, you, you cease to, to register. But in these battles, they're, they're they're, they're intimate, and, and one person getting killed, especially a relative, makes a, a big difference. I think that's an excellent observation, um, particularly because of the family-oriented nature of the division itself. Um, mm-hmm. Being a Southern gentleman, he considered all of his men part of his family, and they, like, like uh, Morgan, felt the same way about their commander and, and their colleagues. Um, I consider Morgan's success mainly based on the fact that Morgan's division was, was a very 
cohesive unit. Um, each of these men were taught to support each other as well as work independently. Um, they could do things that um, maybe a typical soldier could not do, and that is, for example, find their way home 500 miles away. And we see several instances of that, of Morgan's men who did escape from Indiana, Ohio, of the 2,460 that did went up, only 500 escaped from the raid. Those 500 men, many of them had to escape over hundreds of miles of enemy territory on their own, some by foot, others by, by horseback. Um, the, some of the stories we see, and many of those are not in my book, but I've read them from the uh, participants who wrote reminiscences or, or diary letters of, of those uh, escapes are ter- tremendously, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're just fascinating what they had to do to escape. And uh, that just proves just how well Morgan trained his men to do what they were supposed to do as special operations uh, inf- uh, mounted infantry. Now, to to push back against that a little bit, ultimately, in Morgan's force was captured. I, I, I should give that as a spoiler alert first, but if you're listening to the show, you already know who Morgan is and what happens to him. Uh, and it's one of the strengths of this book, that as you read it, uh, the drama keeps building. Even though you know what's going to happen to Morgan's force, you keep thinking, oh, he's going to make it across the river here. No, he's not. Uh but it's written in a very dramatic, uh, uh, interesting fashion that way. Thank you. But but ultimately, he, he gets captured. Uh, does that mean his raid is, a, is ultimately a failure for all that it's a pioneering special operation? That is, of course, subject to debate, but I would contend no. Um, <laughs> the fact is he had a mission, and that mission was to divert Union forces away from East Tennessee, particularly the Army of the Ohio on Burnside, and that he was able to accomplish. Um, and that even is subject to debate amongst historians. I've had several discussions with historians who said, well, um, the only reason Burnside did not move on onto Cumberland Gap uh, when he was ordered by General Henry Halleck uh, to do so in, in June of 1863 was the fact that um, he, Burnside kept complaining to Abraham Lincoln and Halleck that Grant had stolen one of his Ninth Corps divisions, uh, Parker's division, for the uh, uh, Jackson, Mississippi campaign, and that he could not move out of Kentucky and, and assault Cumberland Gap until he had that division back. But um, if somebody uh, will you know, very clearly read the communications that Burnside has with his subordinates, such as uh, uh, George Hartsuff, who was commander of the 23rd Corps, um, or to some of Hartsuff's subordinates that Burnside would communicate directly. And then look at the communications he has with William Rosecrans and Lincoln and Halleck. You start to see that Burnside's hands are tied for movement into East Tennessee because his cavalry is all engaged in chasing Morgan. And you can't move an army into enemy territory without the eyes and ears of its cavalry. And that's what Morgan accomplished. He gave, basically, Burnside was trying to move the uh, blame upward, uh, very typical of a leader. I'm, I'm a manager myself of a large team. And, you know, I, I know that sometimes leaders will defer the blame that's brought onto them by their 
superiors. When a project is late, for example, they'll defer it upward to put the blame on their superiors saying, well, you didn't give me enough resources, you didn't give me enough time, this is why I'm late, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Burnside was doing the same. And in fact, um, there were multiple times in July of 1863 that Abraham Lincoln even contacted Burnside directly and says, you don't need the Ninth Corps Division back to move on East Tennessee. Please proceed. He said in his very nice words Abraham Lincoln normally used. Mm-hmm. And so did uh, Halleck multiple times. In fact, Halleck was getting very frustrated with Burnside. But then Burnside would, in the same time frame, would talk to his subordinate and says, get ready to move. We're about to move on East Tennessee. And he said that from the beginning of July. So why would he tell his subordinates to get ready to move unless he thought that uh, something would come sooner than the Ninth Corps. Certainly, uh, East Tennessee was the focus of the Lincoln administration throughout the war. And uh, in 1862, when Morgan raids into Kentucky, uh, the first time there's a cavalry raid in Kentucky, Lincoln gets all involved in 1861. He's sending telegrams. And in 1862, he says, so one of my favorite telegrams he sends to Halleck says, they're having a stampede in Kentucky. Please see to it. <laughs> yeah. uh, the president is like, just take care of this. I don't want to deal with it. Uh, but he doesn't panic, unlike you know Burnside or uh, Wright or some of the other generals in, in Cincinnati who, who got all you know, out of sorts when these things happened. Well, well we're going to take another short break and come back talk more about Morgan's Great Raid. That's the subject of the book by our guest tonight, David L. Mowry. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with David L. Mowry, author of Morgan's Great Raid, The Remarkable Expedition from Kentucky to Ohio. been talking about the... Uh, 
many dimensions of this uh, military expedition, about which this is the first uh, real campaign history focusing on the raid, and uh, a very uh, entertaining book. David, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because I think it's one of the most noticeable features of the book, are the maps, which I thought were extremely clear and extremely helpful and frequent and and connected well with the writing so you could actually understand what was happening at each of these skirmishes along the way. Could you talk about the maps and, and how, how those got in here? Well, thank you for that compliment. That's by far uh, the most important part of the book that I, that I personally feel has uh, contributed to the history of Morgan's Great Raid. Um, there are 25 maps in the book, and um, each of them concentrate on a battle or skirmish of the raid. Um, uh, some are concentrated on the, the overall campaign um, as it progressed through Kentucky, Indiana, Ohio. Um, uh, the work I did on that was probably the most amount of research I had to do because um, I really had to go back into the primary sources for such things as um, atlases from the various counties he passed through, many of which, by the way, um, were published before the Civil War, and actually Morgan was known to carry some of these atlases along, mm. along the raid route. Um, so I had copies of those, of those atlases and uh, used those uh, to, to gain the, uh, the old road structures from the battlefield areas uh, where he fought. And then I had to get a lot of records, uh, primary source records from civilians who witnessed the fighting, uh, because a lot of these, uh, these fights, in fact, most of them were never published before. There have never been battle maps or skirmish maps published of these, of these fights. So this book is the first of its kind for many of them, including the largest battle fought in the eastern Midwest states, uh, the Battle of Buffington Island, and also the second um, battle that was fought in Ohio, and that's the Battle of uh, Sleenville. Um, I call it the skirmish at Slimville because that's what, what it is officially listed as um, in the official records. But um, that's, that's where I've, I gain a lot of pride because I feel like um, these, these maps and the images I've produced for the raid book uh, really give the reader the, the thousand-word version of some of these fights um, because of the limited text I had. Uh, I needed to have something that um, an expert... Civil War reader, as well as a, a novice Civil War reader, could gain that visual look at at a battle or skirmish and understand what was going on. Because Morgan's tactics were very convoluted in fighting. Uh, he used speed and movement to outwit his enemy in fights. And uh, you see that a lot in skirmishes, such as uh, the skirmish at Eagleport, uh, which is a classic case of his, of his movement. Uh, being able to escape a, uh, a larger or equal sized force. The uh, the maps. One of my pet peeves, and I'm sure other readers share this. When you're reading a Civil War book, and there are places described in the text, and then there's a map, and those place names don't appear on the map. Or conversely, there are place names all over the map, but they don't appear in the text. And that's not the case here. The the maps and text go together clearly you you uh, had input uh, a lot into making the maps it, the one that struck me was uh, as i was reading it uh, the battle of uh, green river bridge or tebbs bend uh, on july 4th 1863 as i was looking at the map i said that looks familiar and i realized i'd been there on a tour with ed bars 20 years ago and 
he had a small scale map, uh, 300 yards to the inch map, much like you have here, uh, although yours is more detailed and, and complete. But to look at your map and go, oh, I remember that place. I've been there. Uh, it was re- it was a, a fun moment uh, for from readers' point of view. The uh, one person I definitely want to ask you about is the uh, is, is Morgan's Telegraph Man. Uh, you, you described this as an early example of electronic warfare. Uh, could you talk about that a little bit? Yes, uh, it was Private George Lightning Ellsworth. Um, uh, he is a very interesting man. He is considered one of the pioneers of electronic warfare in, uh, in the world. Um, in fact, the London Times commented after the Civil War that electronic warfare, uh, introduced by Morgan's Raiders, in fact, uh, was one of the greatest contributions to, to world warfare uh, techniques uh, from the American Civil War. Um, and, and it came from George Lightning Ellsworth, um, he was a very interesting gentleman from Canada. Uh, he joined the Confederate Army um, as a private in the 2nd Kentucky Cavalry, which is uh, the cavalry unit that was, was the basis for Morgan's division. And uh, from the very get-go, from the early part of the war, uh, Morgan understood that this man was not a very good soldier, but he was an excellent telegrapher. Uh, he had a talent that was beyond many talents, um, in the, in the area of electronic warfare. This man was able to not only type out telegraph messages very well, he was actually trained by the inventor of the telegraph, Samuel B. Morris. But he also had the ability to sit next to a telegraph officer um, who was typing out a message, and he could sit there for maybe a minute or two and listen to this guy tap out a message and then shove him aside, jump in the chair, and, and start tapping at the same rhythm as as the enemy telegraph officer. Um, he memorized the rhythm, and the rhythm of a tap uh, for uh, what we call the fist, what's the official name of that tapping rhythm, uh, for a telegraph person uh, sending a message or listening to a message, every person has a specific telegraph typing rhythm, and that rhythm identifies yourself like a signature. And so enemy... Um, Telegraph officers would understand if there is a uh, imposing person on the line, someone that is not normally there, by the rhythm. But because Ellsworth was able to replicate that rhythm after only a few minutes of listening to it, he would jump on the line and start tapping out these messages that were all false, uh, giving large numbers to Morgan's men, like he like he had ten thousand men with him, or he was heading in one direction, and he was actually heading in the very opposite direction. Those messages were believed because the, the tapping rhythm was believable. And as a result, uh, Union officers, including Burnside, were all confused as, uh, the, I'm getting conflicting messages here. Which one do I believe? And as a result, it just caused complete confusion at times in, in the Union, uh, Union headquarters. They, they really didn't know where Morgan was going sometimes or if he had 10,000 men or did he have 2,000. We don't know. And thanks to George Lightning Ellsworth, who used his skills throughout the raid route until he escaped at Reedsville, Ohio, um, because of his skills, uh, Morgan was able to uh, set up traps for Union soldiers or more, more often avoid traps and avoid uh, Burnside's ability to stop him. 
So, so when uh, this afternoon an email arrived for every faculty member at the university saying, uh, we're changing your email something or other, your storage limit. Uh, in order to do this, you have to click on this and send us your password. It was an obvious uh, spam, obvious uh, phishing attempt to get passwords from people. I imagine hopefully nobody fell for it. But that's uh, but pretending to be someone else online is, is what this guy was doing. He was pretending to be some a different, pretending to be a Union Telegraph signaler and fooling them. That, that it's just remarkable that this happened in uh, in 1863 and that it was so successful. Yeah. You mentioned Bluffington Island. That that's that's the from what I could tell the biggest engagement of this campaign. Is that accurate? That is correct. That's that's where Morgan thought he would be able to cross the Ohio River back into Kentucky and escape. Uh, but what, what happened there? Why, why was he unable to do that? Uh, well, it was because of Mother Nature, unfortunately, that the battle occurred. Um, Morgan had about, about 1,900 men when he arrived at Buffington Island, which is near Portland, Ohio, southeast corner of the state of Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the reason that the battle is named after the island um, even though no part of the battle was ever fought on the island, which is one of the biggest misconceptions of the battlefield. Uh, it was named after a popular ford of the Ohio River there. Um, before we had the dams on the Ohio River, which were established uh, during the 1920s, um, one could not get a steamboat up the river in the summer, day, summer days, uh, in the summer months of July, August, etc. Um, you couldn't get one upstream of Portsmouth, Ohio. So steamboats had a hard time navigating the river uh, between Pittsburgh and Portsmouth because of the fact there were so many sand shoals and, uh, and bars that steamboats would get stuck. Well, mm-hmm. a heavily laden gunboat of the U.S. Navy would equally get stuck. And Morgan knew that. And um, as he passed through uh, southern Ohio, his goal was to cross the Ohio River at one of these fords, and there were many of them, but Buffington Island Ford was a natural place to cross. Unfortunately, though, he had made several blunders in southern Ohio that slowed down his, uh, his speed, and speed is of the essence for a special ops mission. And mm-hmm. he, those blunders added up, and eventually he was, uh, he was stuck at um, Buffington Island because when he arrived there on the night of July 18th, 1863, um, he found that the ford, which was usually a two-foot level on a normal day in July, uh, it was at six feet. And uh, the scouts said there, were, there was a, a small earthwork there with roughly 200 men. They couldn't tell in the dark if they were regular army. Um, when I say regular army here, I mean volunteers that had been trained or if they were militia, whom Morgan Tilly uh, felt militia were easy to, to brush aside. He had no fear of militia at all. Um, they couldn't tell. So the combination of the flooding of the Ohio River, which was a 20-year level, by the way, at the time, uh, and, and the earthwork caused Morgan to delay his crossing until the next morning, July 19th. And that was fatal because the pursuing troops under Edward Hobson, Brigadier General Edward Hobson, the Provisional Division had been chasing him since Kentucky, caught up with him at the very same time that Brigadier General Henry Judah's uh, brigade of 1,000 men caught up 
to him on the south side of the battlefield. He was he was caught in a pincer movement, and then the U.S. Navy was able to get up the river to the to the island as well because of the flooding. So he was caught in a three-way vice, and it was a total disaster for Morgan's division there. He uh, lost of the eighteen hundred men he, he that were engaged there. Um, he ended up escaping with eleven hundred. So he lost roughly seven hundred men in that battle, or in Many of them escaped the battlefield, but were caught um, in the hills of eastern Meigs County, where the battle was fought. You mentioned the Bluffington Island is it's a misnomer for the battle because it was not fought on the island. But that made me curious about the what people what the battlefields look like today. If I were to drive back from North Carolina up to uh, Michigan, let's say, and drive through southeastern Ohio. Are many of these sites marked or preserved in any way? Do you know much about that? Well, actually, thanks to the the, the effort that I spent, uh, spent 13 years on the Volunteer Ohio Civil War Trail Commission, uh-huh. uh, one of the things we did was establish the John Hunt Morgan Heritage Trail of Ohio, which completed a, a three-state uh, mission to mark John Hunt Morgan's great raid through uh, Kentucky, Indiana, Ohio. Um, these sites are now marked uh, officially that uh, we, you read in the book. Um, mm-hmm. Most of those are marked by, in some way by a new marker that was uh, we dedicated the trail back in 2013. So this is fairly new research and uh, fairly well marked now. So visitors can now travel the whole length of Morgan's Raid from Burksville, Kentucky, all the way up to West Point, Ohio, um, on a continuously marked trail. It's it's one of the best things about um, the Great Raid uh, today is that visitors can do that. So taking this book along, you could use the map, see what's where, and, and, and follow the action. Uh, just a quick question. We're almost out of time. Uh, but are, are some of these battles uh, just overgrown with urban development, or are, are some of them still in 1860s roughly condition? Many of them are actually in their 1860s condition, particularly those okay. in eastern Ohio. Mm-hmm. Well, that is, is good news for pre- preservationists and for students who want to learn more about the Civil War, and particularly Morgan's Great Raid. Uh, the book, Morgan's Great Raid, The Remarkable Expedition from Kentucky to Ohio, uh, a really interesting work. Uh, listeners, you will enjoy reading it. Uh, the author is David L. Maury. He's been our guest tonight. David, thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much, Jerry. I really am honored to have been, to have been uh, invited on to the show. Thank you. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm-hmm.